Testing, testing. This is Lizzie Oziel, Vision Movement, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. I'm here with Ravi Huda Cohen. Hi. And uh, we're going to talk about some stuff today. What so, are we going to talk about today? Uh, well, first, I really wanted to talk about the really exciting launch of our Patreon, where mm. we upload exclusive content for listeners uh, to get access to things that you might not normally see from us online. Yeah, I'm actually really excited about this Patreon community that we've started because it's an opportunity for us to really give something back to the listeners who have been supporting the show. You know, from the beginning, this program has been completely listener funded. And now we are providing exclusive content that isn't just part of the normal feed. It's, um, it's content that might be a little bit intense for the general public, and we only really want to share it with our supporters. So, you know, the, the Patreon page is, is a great way to do that. Yeah, I mean, here at Vision, we have some pretty interesting, controversial takes on a lot of subjects that are at the forefront of the minds of Jewish listeners. So it's exciting that we have a channel to actually release that for people who are interested in hearing more about what we have to say. Yeah, so if anyone's interested in checking out our Patreon and joining the community there, it's patreon.com slash vision movement. And you'll find our regular stuff there, my podcast in the Parsha, the next stage, but also exclusive content, uh, including uh, recordings from our webinars that aren't available to the general public. So anyone interested in checking all that out, go to the Patreon page, patreon.com slash vision movement. And there are several tiers to choose from, you know, and different people like to support us at different levels. We understand a lot of our listeners are students. A lot of our listeners aren't in a position to give more than $18 a month. And of course, whatever tier you join at uh, would determine, you know, not only the access you get to the exclusive content, but also other perks like vision movement merchandise that is mailed out twice a year, um, the ability to sign up for some of our online courses for free. I mean, you'll see each tier kind of explains what patrons get when they sign up to support us. Yeah, I mean, here at Vision, we were really busy developing our own ideology and our own takes on things that can sometimes be considered somewhat controversial. And, you know, that's good. This course is pretty basic these days, and so it's good to have some hot takes, but it's definitely meant for serious listeners. And so if you consider yourself one and you really enjoy our content, I definitely recommend joining our Patreon and signing up and getting access to this content that I'd say is a tear up from the stuff that we put out here for free. Yeah, and uh, that's really exciting. And this week we had an exclusive Patreon event with uh, Jonathan Pollard and Ariel Avidar uh, speaking about the U.S. interest in our current war. And uh, if listeners are interested in checking that out, we should be putting it up on uh, the Patreon page relatively soon. Awesome. Great. Do you want to say the link? Yeah, it's uh, patreon.com slash vision movement. Okay. So now, that being said, next week is Hanukkah, which is one of my favorite festivals on the calendar. Uh, in fact, we used to have several festivals celebrating victories of the Maccabean Revolt. You know, listeners who've 
been with us for quite a while understand that uh, in my mind I, I feel deeply connected to the Maccabim, to Matatiao and his sons and to everything that they stood for and in my mind I'm, I'm really just a continuation of whatever they were. You know, I think the vision movement really does see itself as essentially playing the same role that they played in our current chapter of history. Right. Obviously, I'm not talking about the more violent side of the Maccabean Revolt. We don't need that. We have our own state. We have our own army. What Jewish history requires of us in this chapter is not armed struggle against a foreign ruler, but the ideological battle that the Maccabean waged is a battle that I think we at Vision see ourselves seriously waging today. Right. And there's definitely a lot to talk about in regards to Hanukkah and how it relates to us. Nowadays, um, I feel like the Hanukkah story has kind of morphed into something maybe a little bit cheesier or maybe a little bit more PG than it actually was. I mean, the content of the Hanukkah story for a lot of Jews now, if we really dive into it, would kind of be a bit shocking. Um, but it, although I actually do think it's helpful, you know, given that we are now the people in power and we have a people... Uh, who we could argue is underneath us trying to wage an armed struggle against us, or at least that's the way they frame it, it's helpful to go back a little bit and understand what our history is with armed struggles against foreign occupiers, if only to just simply understand the enemy we're fighting a little bit more, not necessarily to, you know, give legitimacy unnecessarily to that cause, but to at least understand it in its entirety. Uh, yeah, for listeners who don't know, we're still fighting a war against Hamas, and uh, it's not over yet. We've had this ceasefire going on for a few days, and we've been getting some hostages back, and, and of course, it's very heartening to see families reunited and, and hostages returning. Uh, but I think for the most part, uh, the people of Israel are not interested in extending the ceasefire too long. They want to eradicate Hamas, really, because... I think that the consensus in Israeli society is that Hamas can no longer exist in our country. They have to not exist here. In order for us to feel safe, in order for the Jews of the South to move back to their homes, there's a lot that needs to happen. But on the other hand, you know, obviously uh, we all appreciate the, the footage of hostages being returned and families reuniting, and, and that's, of course, good to see. Now, it's true that Hamas, I think, in their minds, they see themselves as the freedom fighters, waging armed struggle against the foreign occupier in, in many ways. We, we could say that they see themselves in the role of the Maccabim. They see themselves playing that role. And we might be falling into the role of the Greeks, of the occupier, uh, in many ways. And I think it's something we have to be extremely careful about. Yeah, I mean, definitely psychologically, in, in their minds, we are playing that role of the occupier and they are fighting us in the same way that one would fight an occupier, a foreign occupier of their land. Um, but, you know, given our own history, given our own um, legacy of armed struggles against foreign occupiers, we most definitely do not view ourselves as being a foreign occupier in this land. I think Hanukkah is a perfect example of how we actually do view ourselves in this land, which is the indigenous inhabitants and people who have the desire to fight against the foreign occupier. Um, and there's actually many interesting elements to the Hanukkah story. There were many different political factions within the Jewish people at the time that were operating and fighting for different things. And the Maccabim happened to be the faction of Jewish society that opposed 
any foreign rule over any part of our land and fought until the moment where they liberated it from the enemy, essentially. Yes, that's true. And I'm afraid that sometimes we, not just in the minds of our enemies, not just in the eyes of our enemies, but in reality, I'm afraid that certain sectors of Israeli society, especially our ruling class, does behave like the Greeks, does behave like the occupied. Um, it's not just as simple of, as like, well, who has power? Who do the power dynamics favor? It's, I think, more a question of like, who's really adopted the worldview? of the Greco-Roman world. And I think that's something that a lot of Israeli society, especially those in positions of power and influence, are guilty of. And that impacts just the fact that a lot of the PR surrounding this current military campaign has been presenting a dichotomy between the like, quote unquote, civilized world versus savages is an extremely colonialist framing. It's the framing presented by every colonizer in every conflict over colonialism, including the Seleucid Greeks, by the way, when they're fighting us from the perspective of Antiochus and his people and his PR machine. You know, the Seleucid Greek Empire was the epitome of the enlightened civilized world. And the Judeans who were fighting against Assyrian Greek rule, Seleucid Greek rule uh, in our land were depicted as these really violent savages in need of being civilized. Well, I think that's really why it's useful to unpack the Hanukkah story in its entirety, because this phenomenon of Jews, let's say, identifying with the foreign occupier, the mindset of a culture that is not our own, it's not a new phenomenon. It actually was present in the Hanukkah story as well, meaning there was several different factions within the Jewish people at that time. We can argue that people like the Hellenized Jews at that time looked at the faction of the Maccabim that were struggling for their independence against this occupier as savages, as, you know, they didn't identify with them, they didn't identify with their ideology. But what's interesting about how that story plays out is that within our national Jewish psyche now, we view the Maccabim as the heroes. Those are the guys that we uphold and look to and say, you know, they're the ones who drove Jewish history forward, but many, if not most, of the Jews at that time actually did view the Maccabim as this radical splinter group who was working against Jewish interests instead of for it. So it kind of goes to show us that sometimes hindsight is twenty twenty, and what might seem uncomfortable for the Jewish people to confront within themselves at a given moment in history is later on almost obvious that that was the path that we should have taken. Um, and I think that's a lot of what the work that we try to do here at the Vision Movement is, is to try to really speak to what is the necessary steps that the Jewish people have to take at this moment in time. You know, what's what does it mean to be a Maccabee in this generation of Jewish history? Um, and I think that's the type of ideology that we have here and the type of ideology that we're trying to teach and spread to the Jewish people it's not always an easy job. No, in a real way, in a deep way, not just, you know, not, not in like a corny surface level, like we're the Maccabim, you know, strong Jews, blah, blah, blah. But like really on a deep level, understanding what the Maccabim were fighting for, um, what chain they were a link in, uh, you know, chain of Jewish thinkers and fighters who want to see a certain kind of world, who want the Jewish people to occupy a certain place in the world who see our values and our culture and our folkways a certain way and are loyal to those and are confronting certain challenges. And those challenges obviously change from generation to generation. 
But to really be able to call ourselves the Maccabim of this chapter of history, we need to understand on a deep level what they were fighting for, the conditions they were fighting in, and how that struggle would change based on the conditions that exist today. Right. I mean, I would argue that, you know, America in, in this day and age plays a similar role that the Seleucid Greeks did in the story of the Maccabim, whereas they seem to be this empire that kind of embraces us and maybe lets us get away with retaining certain parts of our identity. But there really is this deep, almost insidious difference between us and them and the culture and the values that we represent that they've done a very good job at almost convincing us that, no, we actually share a lot of these things. And again, in, in hindsight, it's really easy to see that the Greeks championed different values and a different culture than the Jewish people. But that's only a result of the Maccabim standing up and saying, no, we need independence from it. Not just, you know, the ability to practice our ritual religious practices under their umbrella, but actually saying, no, we need to liberate ourselves entirely from their clutches. Um, but that probably was not an easy position to take at that time, given the way that the Seleucid Greek Empire operated. And I would argue that we're in a similar position today with the West again. And many Jews nowadays still find it very hard to confront those glaringly obvious contradictions between who we are and who they are. Um, and, you know, we, we really should give proper attention and proper respect to the kind of battle that is being waged. It's not just you know, that clear cut, that simple. It's really a battle of values, identity. Right. I think part of like the U.S.-Israel relationship today requires Israel to adopt a Western worldview and to almost recreate our own perspective of our national interests in order to conform to the regional interests of the American empire. Yeah, I, I would agree. But it's easy to look at the Hanukkah story, the story of the Maccabean Revolt and what was going on in Judea at the time. And it's very easy to look at that through the lens of, okay, there was this kind of like westernized ruling class that was essentially like selling out on the values and the culture of our people and siding with the empire because they believed it was good for Judea. And um, and then there was this kind of like extremist, you know, guerrilla movement that ultimately won. So we celebrate them as heroes. You know, there, there have also been, quote unquote, extremist guerrilla movements in our history that we don't celebrate or a lot of the Jewish world doesn't celebrate largely because they didn't win. Like the Zealots, like Bar Kokhba, you know, a lot of our anti-Roman freedom fighters don't get the same recognition and like lionization as the Maccabim uh, because they lost. And, and in some ways, I think that almost entitles them to more because, you know, the fact that they made the same sacrifices, um, definitely fought the same struggles as the Maccabim just, you know, at a later stage yet weren't victorious and were therefore kind of robbed of their glorious place in our people's story. Um, so I, I think we need to keep that in mind, um, that there's no real difference. In fact, William Farmer has a great book. Uh, I think it's called uh, The Maccabees, the Zealots, and Josephus, where he proves, you know, it's more of an academic work, but he, he proves that the zealot movement really was the continuation of the Maccabee movement, just as the Pharisee movement was the continuation of the Hasidim, a group that had been part of the Maccabee forces, at least in the initial stages of the war, when they were fighting for our culture, fighting for our identity, fighting for Shabbat, fighting for Rosh Chodesh, our calendar, fighting for 
Torah. Uh, but once those things were being offered to us by the enemy in exchange for us giving up the struggle and not continuing to fight for our political freedom, you know, they kind of withdrew. So uh, William Farmer, if anybody's interested in checking out that book, the Maccabees, the Zealot and Josephus, if I'm not mistaken, William Farmer, he proves uh, very impressively and I think very decisively that the Zealot movement was essentially the Maccabee movement and the Pharisee movement was the Hasidim just in a later generation. Yeah, very true. So it's easy to kind of depict this story as a westernized ruling class out of touch with its own indigenous culture, uh, siding with the forces of empire against their own people and the Maccabeem kind of rising up as this, you know, violent anti-colonial guerrilla force. Uh, but I think it's also important to understand that both the Hellenists and the Maccabeem are expressions of the collective Israelite soul that shine into this world in every generation through these different forces, through these different tribal forces in our identity, and that it's not really that one is good and one is bad. Like we can say that the Hellenists were expressions of the tribal force of Yosef, and the Maccabim were expressions of, I don't know, maybe Levi, maybe Shimon, maybe Yehuda. Uh, it depends on who and when, perhaps. But these are all important forces in our national makeup. Just like today, when we look at the different forces in Israeli society, um, they're all important. I think the problem we have is that, and maybe it's a similar problem that existed in the early days of the Hanukkah story, that the tribe of Yosef had too much power, just as it has too much power today, and it insists on having like exclusive control over the trajectory of our society. I, I think Yosef plays an important role. I don't think the Hellenists are all bad. I, I think there's something true in, in what they wanted and what they were struggling for. But ultimately, because of, of the way these forces were polarized in our society, and obviously the way that the empire at, at that time, and perhaps even at this time, uh, tries to drive wedges between different sectors of our society in order to advance their own imperialist agendas. You know, we're, I'm speaking in parallel. I mean, we're talking about the Seleucid Greek Empire as much as the Roman Empire, as much as the British Empire, as much as the U.S. Empire, like meaning it's all the same story on loop. It's kind of repeating itself throughout our history. Uh, so it's important to recognize these forces, understand what's happening on the back end, and understand where it can go. Obviously, we are you know, we are on the side of the Maccabim, we are on the side of the Zealots, we are on the side of the Lehi, we are on the side of all of the Jewish freedom fighters who have tried to advance our history, tried to advance our story throughout time. But I think to do that effectively, we also need to be able to see the positive value in our political opponents and not just to caricaturize them, just as I don't think it's helpful to caricaturize Palestinians and to cast them as like the fantasy antagonists of our story, but to actually really understand them from their own perspective and to recognize what's true in their story. I think, you know, what we say in Israel, call of a homer, you know, even more so, we need to do that with our internal and Jewish political opponents, those who have a different vision for what this country should be, those who have different values, those who have a different prioritization of values, those who might uh, look at social and political issues differently through a different lens than we do and come to different conclusions. We have to be able to see their value and the importance of their place in our society while at the same time acknowledging that they should not have uh, exclusive 
rights to dominate and drive the trajectory of our state. You know what's beautiful about Jewish culture, our identity in a deep kind of way, is that we do have so many different facets of our identity. And there really is place for every facet of our identity, whether you're on the Yosef side, whether you're on the Yehuda side, the Shimon side, the Levi side, you know, within this like identity of Israel, there are many expressions of that. And every piece has to have room to grow and be its healthiest self. And I think part of, you know, Yehuda's function is understanding the, we can say, more extreme parts of Jewish identity, the ones who assert very strongly, we are the Jews, our culture is completely different, it's completely separate, we champion very specific and certain values. You know, we have to be able to appreciate and give space for that part of ourselves to thrive, while also giving space to the part of ourselves to thrive that is like the rest of the world, that shares the values of the rest of the world, that kind of, you know, maybe appreciates their ideological paradigm, whatever it is. But I would say that, it's kind of been proven through our history that Yosef as a tribal identity is not necessarily best positioned to be in a leadership position that will allow every single part of our identity to thrive and flourish and accept the fact of their existence. While maybe Yehuda, we could say a more um, grounded, by, considered by some to be more extreme, but, but really grounded in our Jewish identity very strongly is probably more well-suited for that leadership position to unite all of these tribes of Israel and give them each proper kavod, proper respect to be themselves and to contribute to the people of Israel as a whole. Right. I, I think that the tribal forces of Yehuda and Levi are actually pretty similar, especially in terms of their worldview. I think what really separates them is that unlike Levi, Yehuda is able to see the value in all the other tribes, and therefore Yehuda should be the leader. Right. These things, talking about the Jewish people in terms of these tribal identities, you know, it might seem a little bit confusing at first if you're not familiar with the lingo, um, but if you stick around on this podcast, you'll definitely hear us throw around these terms a lot, because oftentimes, specifically when we're talking about, we could say the Israeli political spectrum, but really the Jewish political spectrum, we try to use these Western framings of right, left, you know, and it really fails to capture the spirit of these different forces within Am Yisrael. And so trying to be very specific and very intentional about the way that in which we categorize ourselves is a very important part of charting our course for the future going forward here in Israel. Right. I think that's very well said. So those are some interesting thoughts on Hanukkah. Hanukkah is coming up next week. I don't know if you're familiar, Lizzie, but um, the Maharal of Prague has a book on Hanukkah. It's called Ner Mitzvah, the Mitzvah Candle, where he basically uh, discusses all four of the empires in history that try to stop Israel from fulfilling our mission in history and try to, at the same time, replace us as the main character of history. We're talking about Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Edom. And Babylon tries to stop us from fulfilling our mission, mainly by removing us from our land. You know, for Israel to be able to fulfill our mission, we need to be in our land. Otherwise, we can't be us. So that's Babylon. Persia, uh, in the time of Ahasuerus, tried to just kill the Jews, right? Remove us from the world. Obviously, if we're removed from the world, if we don't exist here, we can't fulfill our function. Greece was very threatened by our prophetic wisdom, the idea of any wisdom beyond human intellect. 
And so Greece uh, allowed us to be in our land and didn't try to kill us, especially not at first. They just wanted to separate us from the Torah. Or, or more accurately, allow us to have our Torah, but only if it's on par and equal to all of the Greek philosophers, etc. Meaning it couldn't be experienced as something prophetic, divine, from beyond this world, beyond what human intellect is capable of creating. And, um, and of course, Hanukkah is very much the story of pushing back against that empire and ultimately being victorious over it after a 26-year guerrilla war. Uh, but then the Maharal talks about Edom, the fourth empire, which basically attempts to stop Israel from fulfilling its function by all of the same means as the other three empires, just in more concentrated form. And unlike the other three empires, which were only successful in dominating Israel for a specific, relatively short amount of time, the Edomite dominance, Edom's dominance, the dominance of the Fourth Empire over Israel has really gone on for roughly 2,000 years. And of course, Edom morphs from the Roman Empire to Christianity, to European feudalism, to capitalism and Western liberalism. I'd say today the United States is very much the leader of the Fourth Empire. It's basically Western civilization. And as Israel rises to rebirth and comes back to life, uh, we can see that Western civilization is on the decline. Yeah, that's, that's very true. I mean, even if you want to just take a bird's eye view on this situation and detach this narrative from the story of the Jews, it's very obvious that Western civilization nowadays is teetering and is kind of losing its power, losing its influence, even from amongst the people within Western civilization, the appeal of the values which they champion and which they're founded on are starting to lose its luster a little bit on the global stage. So it's, and it's interesting when then you relate that back to the trajectory of the people of Israel, how the weakening of the power of the West kind of coincides with the growth of the power of Israel, you know, us returning to our land, us getting on our, on our own two feet here and starting to build states, starting to really reconnect with who are like, who we actually are deep inside. And you see these two things happening in tandem with one another. And I feel like if you're a Jew who is connected to our story and you pay attention to these historical patterns, these historical cycles, uh, it's very clear to see that that's actually what's happening. Um, sometimes it takes, you know, someone pointing that out to really make that click. But I, I do think it's very obvious. And it's something that we should give more airtime to as a community. Right. And, and speaking of this conflict between Western civilization and Israel, um, or the Fourth Empire and Israel coming back to life. You know, yesterday was the 29th of November, which in Israel is kind of a weird day. We call it Kaftet de November, right? Uh, which is already weird because we're talking about Kaftet, like, you know, 29, according to the way that our people number it, Kaftet, and then November, which is a month of, you know, the Christian world on the Christian calendar. And what Kaftet November essentially commemorates is the day of UN General Assembly Resolution 181, also known as... The Partition Plan? The Partition Plan of November 29th, 1947, right? The UN, and, and again, in, in the West's narrative of what took place, the UN voted to give the Jews a state. Or more accurately, to partition 
Palestine into two states, a Jewish state and an Arab state. That, I mean, that's just, it's awful that we have this date that we maybe even regard with somewhat of a warm feeling that we would look to this day where the Gentiles essentially degraded us by saying, yeah, maybe you deserve a little bit of a state, maybe a little bit of your land here and there, and I guess we'll grant it to you. I mean, if you, you're connected to your identity as a Jew, you, you would inherently feel degraded by that because obviously we don't need anybody else to tell us that we have a legitimate claim to create a state here in our land, in our borders, and even more so to give credit to the fact that they actually chopped it up and said, yeah, you could you could have a state, but like only in these certain parts. I mean, if you look back at our previous historical struggles to hold on to our independence in all parts of this land, and then you give legitimacy to the non-Jews telling us, yeah, we give you permission for it. I mean, it's kind of disrespectful to our legacy and everything that we've fought for. We don't really need this legitimization. So it definitely shouldn't be a day that's held up as like some great victory for the Jewish people. If anything, it's a day where the nations of the world just continue to double down on their humiliation of us by thinking that they have the right to dictate to us where we have the right to sovereignty and you know, where we can create a state within within our own ancestral homeland. Like, that's majorly disrespectful and definitely not something we should commemorate. First of all, I would say that it's important to note that this resolution was actually not legally binding in any way, shape, or form. It was a recommendation, even in its own language. Uh, it was also a General Assembly resolution, not a Security Council resolution. For those listeners not familiar, there's a part of the UN that is democratic, but powerless. That's the General Assembly. And then there's a part of the UN that has power, but is not democratic. That's the Security Council. So this is not a Security Council resolution. This is a General Assembly resolution. It is democratic, but it has no real power. It has no real teeth. So this resolution is not only toothless, but a recommendation in its own language. I would also argue that it took land away from Israel because we're talking about two months. You know, on, on September 27th of that year, the British Empire, which had occupied our country, announced that they were leaving Palestine really as a result of Jewish terrorism, meaning the, the Lehi, primarily the Lochamechi with Israel, the fighters for the freedom of Israel, had launched and led an anti-guerrilla struggle against British rule in our country which intensified and intensified, and ultimately, a few years later, the Etzel, the Ergun Svailumi, under the command of Menachem Begin, uh, joined the Lechi's anti-British fight. There was even like a, a few months where the Haganan, the Palmach, kind of participated in a token way. But the British left the entire country, from the river to the sea, as a result of a Jewish anti-colonial struggle. Uh, and for the UN to then turn around and say, okay, you could have some of that land. This is a little bit offensive. It's more than a little bit offensive. And I think the main takeaway that listeners should have from all of this, like all of this being one narrative here, is that we have to really understand what the Jewish conception of ourselves are, what the conception of our relationship to this land is. And we know unquestionably for ourselves, we have the right to have sovereignty in all parts of this land, regardless of whether or not the Gentiles that are powerful at that time acknowledge that we have that right. And to kind of try to engage them on their own ideological turf and sacrifice 
our conception of the world in order to negotiate or, you know, win favor in their eyes has never really worked out for us. It can't work out for us because it's a betrayal of ourselves and everything that we really believe to be true about our identity as Jewish people to give them credence to be the ones dictating to us how and what and where we should be allowed to be ourselves in our own land. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, it's also interesting that so many pro-Israel organizations, first of all, in Israeli society, I don't think people really talk about Kaftet November as much as they once did. I don't think it's really a day that everybody like gets excited about. I, I don't think, I mean, it's not, nobody, certainly nobody saying Hallel uh, with a bracha, without a bracha. It's not given any spiritual significance in the way that Yom Atzmaut or, or Yom Yushalayim are. Um, like Yom Atzmaut, for example, AER, the 5th of ER, that is the day the British left the country. We celebrate, we say Hallel, because we beat the British Empire. Like that's really what's going on in Yom Atzmaut, celebrating Israel's victory over England. Remember, the war against the Arabs took place right afterwards, but the day we celebrate is the day the British left after a, a roughly 9, 10 year anti-colonial struggle led by the Lehi. And I think it was because that for the first three decades of Israeli statehood, the Mapai party, the labor Zionism, essentially ruled the state. They formed the governments of Israel and they were considered like the legitimate ruling party for the first three decades of statehood. As a result of this, I think it was very important for them to promote the 29th of November as an important day and also to promote the UN General Assembly Resolution, the the partition plan, as an important achievement because that's what they did. Meaning, if you say that we have a state because the Lehi and the Etzel fought the British Empire to free our land, then someone might assume on election day, maybe I should vote for the people who led that struggle. Maybe they should be governing our country. Um, But if you say that Israel has a state because the Zionist movement successfully lobbied the nations of the world to vote in our favor, then one could say, okay, those are our leaders. The Zionist movement, you know, the, the labor Zionists specifically, they should be in charge. So I think for a long time during the early years of Israeli statehood, the 29th of November was used to legitimize the rule of Mapai and the dominance of labor Zionism in Israeli politics. But there was a very dangerous side effect. I'm not sure David Ben-Gurion and his successors really took into consideration. If our youth grow up believing that we have a state because the UN voted to give us one, then to maintain our state, we probably need to continue to appease the international community. But if we have a state because young Jews had the courage and self-sacrifice to fight a powerful enemy to free our land, then in order to maintain our independence, we need to raise our youth with the courage and the strength and the conviction and dedication to be willing to fight any enemy in order to maintain Jewish self-determination here. That's a different takeaway, right? That has very different educational ramifications for the future generations. I I think in the Jewish communities that exist in the West Bank, for example, in Judea and Samaria, uh, kids definitely grow up learning more about our struggle for freedom than about the UN partition plan. 
But for decades, that wasn't the case in most of Israel. So I think that's something important to keep in mind, just how the way we treat days like the 29th of November can have educational ramifications on future generations. And I think it's also important to note that even though the Israeli state, because for many years now it hasn't been dominated by the labor Zionists, it no longer really upholds this day as anything deeply meaningful or significant. It just kind of faded into the background like so many other outdated features of Israeli society. But a lot of our Hasbara organizations, a lot of the pro-Israel diaspora still likes to uphold the 29th of November and talk about the UN partition plan, uh, specifically in trying to point out how the Jews, the Zionist movement, accepted the recommendation of the UN while the Arabs, whether we're talking about the Palestinians or the Arab states surrounding our country, rejected it as if we're the good guys, we accepted it, we did the right thing, and those bad Arabs just couldn't accept the compromise. They would have had a state a long time ago, as the mantra goes, but, but they decided to fight us instead. And I don't think that's accurate. I don't think that's true, because what it leaves out is the fact that the Jews who actually fought the British to free our land, the Etzel and the Lehi, rejected the UN partition plan. So basically you have the Zionist movement, which essentially collaborated with British imperialism, accepting the partition plan, while both the Jewish underground and the Palestinians and also the surrounding Arab states rejected it. Right. So it's clear that, you know, people who understand that the legitimacy of any nation's claim to the land shouldn't actually come from, you know, this international body deciding whether or not it's actually legitimate are really the people who kind of don't hold this day up with any importance or actually don't give legitimacy to it. And I think that becomes really important, you know, like you said, as an educational tool, when we're talking about where our legitimacy comes from, if the premise of it is, oh, the international community recognizes our legitimacy, then the danger becomes the minute they stop recognizing our legitimacy, now you have to basically reevaluate your entire identity. And I actually think in terms of like politics now, we're edging up on that point where the international community, in terms of their way that they see Israel, has become less and less and less supportive of what we're doing here. And it has become really threatening for a lot of Jews who tend to view our legitimacy as coming from them. Um, it's, it's like almost an existential crisis because what are we going to do once those forces turn against us? But for the people who are more rooted in what we're actually doing here and our real right to be here and kind of do as we see fit with our land and with our freedom, it's not as big of an identity crisis that the international community should you know, basically blast us or tell us that they don't really support what we're doing here anymore because it was never founded in that to begin with. We never really considered that to be the basis for our lives here. Mm -hmm. Right. And this is even told to us in our Parsha. I, I think that, uh, you know, this week is Parsha by Ishlach, which really starts with Yaakov's battle against the Malach of Esav, the angel of Esav, however we to understand that. And Esav, of course, in the minds of our sages represents Western civilization. Esav is a dome. Um, a dome is the fourth empire. The fourth empire is Western civilization. The fact that Yaakov did battle with and defeated the angel, the spiritual back end of Esav, means that we've already won. 
It just takes a few thousand years to materialize in this world. But, but we've already defeated the fourth empire. Yaakov, who's Israel, represents Israel, has already defeated the spiritual power of Esav. We've won. It just hasn't happened yet. But what we see, which is very interesting, you know, we see a very interesting parallel between what's going on in the Parsha and what's going on historically, especially when we talk about the 29th of November. Yaakov came into the land limping, came into the land injured, right? And Esav kisses him, right? It says in the Torah, Vayishakeu, and there's there's uh, weird signs in the Torah scroll over that word by Shakeo, and some of our sages say, well, that means he really tried to bite him. He, Esav was not really trying to kiss Yaakov. I don't know how you learned this growing up. You learned that I he, did learn that he tried to bite him, yeah. That he tried to bite him. So there is a Midrash that he was trying to bite Yaakov, and Yaakov's neck turned to marble, and Esav like, injured his teeth, he broke yeah. his teeth. And cool. Um, the Tzvat Emet has a very interesting explanation. He says that no, Esav was in fact kissing Yaakov, but Esau's kiss is the bite, meaning when Western civilization is nice to us, that's when we have to be careful. Like when they're actually behaving in a way that appears to be supportive, that's when we really have to have our guard up because there's something really sinister there. There's something really dangerous there that we need to guard ourselves against. Um, when they try to bite us, it's actually great because then we know, okay, these guys are the enemy and we just we have to protect ourselves. But when they try to be nice to us, um, th then we run the risk of falling into their trap. Now, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the author of the Zohar Kadosh, also a zealot, a leading student of Rabbi Akiva, who is an anti-Roman freedom fighter. In fact, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai himself is an anti-Roman agitator who has to escape the empire after his master is killed. And he goes and hides in a cave with his son for 12 years, learning from the ultimate Kamei, the ultimate zealot, Eliyahu Navi. And what he learns from Eliyahu in the cave ultimately becomes what we know to be the Zohar HaKadosh, the, the Kabbalistic writings. And Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says, even though it is a law of nature that Esav hates Yaakov, at this moment, Esav genuinely felt sorry for Yaakov. And here we see the, the deeds of our ancestors are signs for the children. The Torah is actually prophecy. What the story being told to us, especially in the book of Bereshit, is actually prophecy for us right now. After World War II, the people of Israel came back to our land limping, injured. And the story the West tells itself is that it genuinely felt sorry for the Jewish people and voted to give us a state. That's Esau's kiss. They voted to give us a state. But their support is dependent on us fulfilling a role that they need us to fill, to be an outpost of Western civilization in West Asia. Meaning that th there's a point where Yaakov, very diplomatically and, and perhaps a little indirectly, convinces Esav to go on ahead. You know, we had a good reunion. Let's part ways. He doesn't want to spend too much time with his brother. And Esav offers to leave some of his soldiers with Yaakov to protect them, to protect Yaakov, to protect his wives, to protect his children. And Yaakov refuses because he understands that Esav cannot be responsible for our security. Right? Esav cannot be responsible for making sure we're safe. We should not be relying on his weapons. We should not be relying on his soldiers. We should not be relying on his money. We Sounds need, familiar. Yeah, we need to be self-sufficient. So I think we should understand, we need to understand that even though Western civilization at that moment 
might have genuinely uh, expressed sympathy for us and you know even the UN General Assembly voted to partition our land into two states and to grant us one of those we need to understand that today we need to free ourselves of the trap that is thinking of our own legitimacy or continued political independence as being dependent on the approval or the sympathy of the Western world. Right. And I mean, I think that speaks for itself in terms of its relevance to the moment that we're at now. If you bring everything back to the current situation that we're in with this war that we're in and you see America's involvement in it and did, you know, an episode about this very recently, it seems like, you know, if you're looking at it from a certain perspective, it's great. America's been so supportive. But I think acknowledging that that support is sinister. It's not always with good intentions and it actually leads us often to be in scenarios where we really shouldn't be in. Just looking at Gaza in specific, I mean, had we not withdrawn at America's behest, we wouldn't be in this war right now where, where we wouldn't have suffered this really awful trauma. And so to acknowledge that Asub's kiss can actually be his bite is a really helpful place for the Jewish people to be at. And it's, it's very interesting, this whole entire war has lined up so well with every single Parsha Hashavua. Like every week, the content of the Parsha has spoken so, like the content of it has been so relevant to this specific moment that the Jewish people have been in week by week in this war with Hamas. And I think that that should just serve to strengthen our resolve to actually look to the Torah as prophecy for our current lives. Sometimes it can feel like this outdated document that really, you know, doesn't really connect much to where we're at at this moment. Khalila. But but it is. It's super relevant. And I think for a lot of people, we're starting to wake up to how much we really need to be paying attention to the lessons of our past in order to build the kind of future that we really want. Right. No, the Torah is nevuah. It's important to keep in mind that in ancient Israel, there were thousands of prophets walking around this country. The only prophets whose prophecies were canonized into the Tanakh were those whose prophecies are relevant for us right now in this generation. Yeah, that's true. And it's, I mean, I've been getting a lot of strength from going over the Nibiyim and seeing the messages that they have for us and, you know, reaffirming for ourselves that this really is the redemption and the rebirth of Israel in our land. It's so obvious and it's so apparent and it's really empowering when you're able to connect and bridge this gap between the Jewish people's past and the Jewish people's present and the Jewish people's future. It's all this one long, beautiful story. Yeah, for sure. Anyways, I view the Hanukkah as very central to the vision movement because it's really a story where it's so clear-cut the different forces that are at play within the Jewish people. And to identify with the Maccabim, who at the time were considered, you know, these crazy extremists, but now in retrospect, it's so clear for the Jewish people to be able to see, you know, those are really the guides that lead us, that are our compass and are, you know, ground us in the story that we've been living for thousands and thousands of years. Um, that's something we focus on at Vision a lot, where, you know, it's not so easy to be part of that group that drives Jewish history forward, but how important it is to actually be part of that group and to develop that same ideology and continue the legacy of the Maccabim, of all of the Jewish freedom fighters. Um, it's a very central and kind of easy to relate to story where you can see all of these concepts come to life. Yeah, for sure. 
So I think this is a good place to wrap it up. Okay. You know? All right. Well, I, I think, you know, we touched on a lot of things here. We spoke about Hanukkah. Um, I want to extend a Merry Hanukkah to all of our listeners. Yeah. Happy Hanukkah. Hanukkah Sameach. Yeah. Uh, we we want to wish all of our listeners a Hanukkah Sameach. If anyone is interested in checking out the show notes of this episode, you can go to visionmag.org backslash the next stage 110110. And if you're interested in joining our Patreon community and gaining access to exclusive content, um, that is really our way of saying thank you to all of our supporters. And if you're not one of our supporters yet, then we invite you to go join them. You go to patreon.com slash vision movement and you can join our patron community at any tier that makes you comfortable and and we really do appreciate it it again this show only exists because people who enjoy this content and people who feel that they gain something from it are actively supporting our work and making sure that we continue to produce episodes like this one yeah hanukkah samaya
הפך ולמוקש, וגאוותו נשבתה. ראש ימיני נישאת, ואויב שמו מחיתה. Salmo 